Welcome back to the second season of the U.S. Naval History Podcast. I'm your host, Chase Dalton. Today's episode is the second and final episode on the Vietnam War. We're zooming in with this episode into the details of the Brownwater operations. That is, the fighting in the marshes, the rivers, the deltas, the creeks, and the birth and the formative operations of the Navy SEAL teams in Vietnam. If you've listened to part one, that episode gave a broader overview, focusing on the blue water operations and some of the geopolitics surrounding the war. Here, it's the mud, the snakes, the night attacks, the POW camp raids, the grueling infantry marches, and the deprivation that made Vietnam a living hell it was for the millions of sailors, Marines, and soldiers on the front lines. In part one, we talked about the Gulf of Tonkin incident, when a North Vietnamese attack on the destroyers Maddox and Turner Joy were reported as, quote, probable but not certain. I can assure you that the naval warfare in the narrow tributaries of the Mekong was nothing like that. If those boys were attacked, they would know it with 100% certainty. It's one thing to be fairly well protected inside of a seal-hold ship and think you see the muzzle flashes and the outline of an enemy small craft amid the fog and the smoke and the gunfire and the flares. But it's another thing entirely to push your way through a narrow river, impenetrable jungle, with just a few feet of visibility on either side, inside a plastic PBR boat, just 31 feet long, with a two-foot draft to avoid the sandy river bottom, with three other men on board, sweat running down your forehead and a tight grip on your rifle, staring into the jungle for signs of enemy movement on 16-hour-long patrols in the tropical heat. Some of the rivers in Vietnam were narrow enough that the small and otherwise maneuverable PBRs would have trouble turning back. Sometimes these patrols were completely silent. Well, as silent as the twin 180-horsepower diesel engines would allow them to be, moving upstream against the slow current with impenetrable jungle on either side, isolated from fast help if something went wrong. Sailors on these nerve-wracking patrols would describe the noise of the jungles all around them, shrinking monkeys and birds and bugs, and how the entire jungle would sometimes slip into unnerving silence, until it all started again, and everybody let out a collectively held breath. Sometimes the tensions of waiting for a firefight in an ambush grew. The hairs on the back of everyone's neck were standing on end in those lonely stretches of river, and the only way to relieve the tension was with a bang. As Navy Lieutenant Commander Thomas J. Cutler recalls, one of the most prized new toys of the sailors was the M79 grenade launcher. It was like a short shotgun. You pressed the trigger and heard a dry thump as the 40 millimeter round was shot from the barrel, followed a few seconds later by an explosion in between the trees and the shore. As Navy Lieutenant Commander Jim Vincent puts it, reconnaissance by fire, kind of like poking a hornet's nest to see if anyone's home. Where there were enemies in the bushes, and this must have been terrifying. The knowledge that the apparently quiet green barrier on the jungle, which pressed right up against the riverbank on both sides, could be filled with Viet Cong, and that they could start shooting at any minute. Add to that the monsoon climate alternating between drenching rains and withering heat, and the sheer labyrinth-like extension of Vietnam's river delta systems and mangroves, many of them still uncharted in the 1960s. And that offered a unique and terrifying component to the naval war. But nonetheless, you had to do it because your bosses, 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 boss, and real someone or another said that this area in particular was vital to control and to the outcome of the entire war. Operation Game Warden, under which sailors patrolled the rivers of the Mekong Delta, was one of the longest of the Vietnam War, spanning from 1965 until the end of the U.S. intervention in the country. In those eight years, Although varying in intensity, 200 sailors were lost. However, the kill ratio of Task Force 116 operatives were 40 to 1, one of the highest of all U.S. forces in Vietnam. Two of Game Warden's sailors were awarded the Medal of Honor, Petty Officer First Class James Williams and Seaman George Otet. Vietnam has some 2,500 rivers and 16 major river basins. These river systems were important traditional travel routes for people and goods. And during the monsoon season, these rivers flooded the rice-growing lowlands and deltas of Vietnam. Control over the food supply, and in Southeast Asia at the time, even more so than now, the food supply was completely synonymous with the rice supply, was one of the most important strategies in the war. There are two enormous river deltas in Vietnam, the Mekong Delta in South Vietnam, and the Hong, or Red River Delta, in North Vietnam. 
controlled by the communists. During the Vietnam War, these were the areas which fed the North and the South Vietnamese populations, respectively. But while the rice from the Hong Delta in North Vietnam was regularly reaped and distributed among the North Vietnamese population, the situation was much more difficult in the South. In South Vietnam's Mekong Delta, the Viet Cong, who if you remember were the insurgent forces fighting on behalf of the North Vietnamese, significantly disrupted the South Vietnamese government's control over the rice. And I think this is true of every government in history, that if you can't fulfill that very bottom slice of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and feed your people, the government's going to start having problems. With the Mekong River Delta system an active battleground, gaining control over a given length of river was often temporary. And to hold a position was painstakingly difficult but vital because there was literally no other way to transport the rice in Vietnam and feed the population at the time. It was not just a question of numbers and firepower. As Kennedy had anticipated, Vietnam posed a different kind of threat. It was a different kind of war, an announcement of hard times to come. Vice Admiral Robert S. Salazar sums it up in an interview where he says, People want to do things like get a high body count. Uh, that goes into statistics someplace and that proves you're winning a war. Well, in reality, what we should have been doing, concentrating on, was an interdiction campaign against infiltration. And we had the tools to do it. And if we had disposed our forces, we would have had a low body count. And I think we'd have been much more effective. Because one thing we had to do was to keep the supply of weapons and ammunition down. The populace was neutral, I would say. Most peasants want to be left alone. The way to reduce the effectiveness of the enemy was to concentrate your resources, including your manpower, on interdiction of his movement. Movement of weapons, primarily. And this would become even more obvious with the publishing of the so-called Bucklew Report. Captain Phil H. Bucklew is one of those legends that appears to have made a difference in every single conflict he participated in. He was a professional football player who heard the news about the Pearl Harbor attacks in the middle of a game. The next day, at the age of 30, he joined the Navy, where he volunteered to join the first ever class of 10 Navy scouts and raiders, a planned elite group of combat swimmers who would scout the beaches ahead of an amphibious landing. By September of 1942, force was ready to scout the landing sites for Operation Torch, the Allied invasion of German-occupied North Africa. On the way to the landing site in Algiers, his ship, the USS Leedstown, was sunk by a German submarine. He was rescued the next day, but that next ship was torpedoed as well. He ended up missing the landings of Operation Torch, and was sent back to the United States for additional training in weapons handling, assault tactics, and underwater demolition, for he and his team were sent to scout the beaches and landing sites for the Allied invasion of Sicily. His team landed on the beaches in the dead of night before the main assault, and communicated back the exact landing details via flashlight signal to the ships offshore. Unfortunately, on one of the surveillance missions, his team was detected and withstood a German assault, all while directing the main force ashore. Buckley was awarded the Navy Cross for extraordinary heroism and distinguished service as a scout boat officer during the invasion of Sicily, but his war was far from over. He and his team repeated the beach reconnaissance mission in southern mainland Italy, where his team got caught in canoes in the middle of a firefight between British warships at sea and German shore defenses on land. Notch up another silver star for Bucklew. His next mission was in England, where he and his team began training for D-Day. He conducted a recon mission to the Normandy beaches before the actual invasion happened, gathering sand samples to see if the soil would be strong enough to support heavy vehicles. On the day of the actual invasion, he landed before the main force on Utah Beach, won another Navy cross while leading the first wave of tank-carrying landing craft to the beach in his scout boat, and then throughout the day, under heavy enemy fire, continued directing secondary assault waves and supporting fire against German positions and rescuing drowning soldiers in the heavy surf, and then went on to fight inland over the course of the next several weeks. 
In October of 1944, Buckley was sent back to the United States to lead training for a new jungle warfare Navy Scouts and Raiders team before being sent to lead it in combat against Japan. Buckley and his jungle warfare team were dropped off in Calcutta, India, and slogged their way through the jungles of Burma and across the border into China, where he and his team dodged the Japanese while making reports about potential amphibious landing sites in eastern China. The knowledge of the atomic bomb was so secret, the operational commanders made the very valid assumption that the only way to get the Japanese out of China would be to invade it. And for that, the army needed to know where they could land troops. But before the landing was needed, the war was over. But never fear, Bill Bucklew was just getting started. He returned to civilian life and served as the football coach at Columbia University while studying for a PhD before duty called again in 1948. He was being recalled into active service as the commanding officer of Beach Jumper Unit 2 in Little Creek, Virginia, where he built a prototype special forces unit and then was assigned to the CIA and promptly sent to Korea, where he and his team began landing commandos and spies covertly along the North Korean coastline after the armistice which ended the act of hostilities was signed in the Korean Peninsula. Then, it was back to the U.S. for Bucklew, where he was placed in command of the Amphibious Training Command followed by command of the Amphibious Intelligence School. By 1961, the rumblings of war in Vietnam were starting, and Buckley was placed in command of a unit which performed surveillance on the Vietnamese coastline. So by then, really, the question was, who else would President John F. Kennedy possibly have chosen to lead this newfangled SEAL team concept? Buckley was the pick, and is considered the father of the Navy SEALs, and he led from the front. His orders were broad in Vietnam. Quote, I don't know exactly what I want you to do. I want you to tell me from what you see after covering the area, what you recommend, what the problems are, and what should be done. I want to know why all I get from Vietnam are glowing reports of our accomplishments. And meanwhile, we're getting the hell kicked out of us. That's your job. Early in 1964, Buckley was sent to the Mekong Delta to assess the situation at the borders and the possibilities for a seaborne invasion. The United States still not officially entered the Vietnam War. His task force, the Vietnam Delta Infiltration Study Group, was conducting a comprehensive study of the problem of enemy infiltration of men and supplies into the South Vietnamese Mekong Delta region across the Cambodian and Lao borders. That same year, the study group published their findings in what became known as the Buckley Report. The report concluded that the border infiltration problem was indeed significant and needed to be stopped for victory in the Vietnam War to be possible. The recommendations were for the U.S. to develop an extensive riverine operation capability to assist the South Vietnamese military in conducting counterinsurgency operations to stop the infiltration problem. U.S. Naval historian John Darrell Sherwood called the Buckley Report prophetic because everything that he warned about ended up happening. Unfortunately, the flow of goods, troops, and ammunition from North Vietnam into the South was never fully stopped. Although to be fair, blocking the borders and securing the rivers was an almost impossible task. To secure the rivers, Buckley advocated for a system of fixed and mobile checkpoints on bridges, canals, and waterway junctions. Every suspicious vessel that passed through these control points would be searched. Irregular river patrols operating in conjunction with the mobile checkpoints would carry out the same controls on a roving and unpredictable basis. This would keep the enemy off balance and further disrupt their supply system. The Buckley Report also noted that there were six underutilized Vietnamese Navy river assault groups and that they should be used to raid Viet Cong landing sites, way stations, supply depots, and assembly points on the river. Vietnamese Marines would clear and hold Viet Cong bases via amphibious assaults. Halting river infiltration also depended heavily on other security measures advocated in the report. These included a beefed-up customs service and a system of 260 land checkpoints throughout the country, manned by police, civil guard, and self-defense corps. One important remark the Buckley Report notes is that, Quote, control of the shoreline must be achieved prior to establishment of effective river control. This was never achieved during the Vietnam campaign, despite highly successful early raids by mobile riverine forces in the early years of the war, which located, trapped, and eliminated thousands of Viet Cong fighters and sweep and destroy joint raids with the South Vietnamese Marines. The Viet Cong were able to adapt 
and evade these large raids that they could not beat in head-on combat. Finally, the Buckley Report recommended that a coastal quarantine be enforced by the 600 or so junks that the coastal force had. U.S. officials remained cognizant throughout the Vietnam War to the points raised in the Buckley Report. Moreover, the first full-scale operations were shaped by Buckley's recommendations, in part because his report was the first comprehensive look at then-modern brownwater operations. World War II saw little use for a brownwater force, and the leadership of the Navy was made up of the men who had been junior and mid-grade officers during World War II. Korea was similar, and in between, the Navy had been focused on developing and maintaining a blue-water force with the reach to check the Soviet Union. The Buckley Report influenced the thinking behind Operation Market Time, which was developed to control the coastal areas, and Operation Game Warden, which did the same for the major river systems coming out of Laos and Cambodia, as the North Vietnamese shifted tactics to avoid coastal interdiction. If you haven't listened to the previous episode, I talk a lot more about Operation Market Time there, so go back and listen to it. The Buckley Report also offered interesting insight on the real state of the enemy and of Allied forces and offered two important conclusions. One, that the Viet Cong were infiltrating large numbers of personnel and supplies from North Vietnam across the border via the river systems from Cambodia and Laos. And that two, the seaborne infiltration route, which was thought to be primary, was actually the secondary method used for high-value items. The Buckley Report also determined that the South Vietnamese Navy did not possess the capability to single-handedly stop the infiltration problem and the only way to prevent enemy infiltration was for the United States to assist the Vietnamese Navy and form a riverine warfare capability. So let's start with Operation Game Warden. The first challenge that the U.S. Navy faced after it became clear that an on-the-ground intervention in Vietnam was inevitable was the lack of craft suitable for fighting in the rivers and the marshes. Most of the PT boats used during World War II had been disposed of after the armistice. The Navy simply saw no use for them, and the maintenance to keep them serviceable was expensive. Fast forward 17 years to 1958, and the events in Vietnam demanded a small, fast, shallow draft boat that could navigate the delta and coastlines of Vietnam. Navy eventually selected a class of Norwegian-built small boats, which were given the official designation as NASTY. These NASTY-class vessels, with their high maneuverability and relatively silent motors, were instrumental to Operation Game Warden, despite their wooden hulls, which is why they would be later replaced by the aluminum-hulled Osprey class. These PFT, Troll Torpedo Fast Boats, were 80 feet long with a standard complement of 17 men, and were the perfect companion to the smaller, fiberglass, PBR, Patrol Boat Riverine, crafts. Together, they very successfully worked with the South Vietnamese Navy to implement a nighttime curfew in several regions of the Mekong Delta, and to slow the infiltration of Viet Cong troops and equipment into South Vietnam. In March of 1965, the first PBRs arrived in Vietnam. Administrative organization for Game Warden fell in River Squadron 5, with four subordinate river divisions set up within each squadron. Each river division had 30 boats, which were then assigned to three river sections of 10 boats each. Usually, these sections were composed of a nasty class boat and several PBRs. The Navy established a training facility for river patrol sailors in the U.S. At first, training took place in the Amphibious Training Center in Coronado, California, the West Coast home of the Navy SEALs. However, shortly after it was determined that the Sacramento River just north of San Francisco had similar geography to the Mekong Delta, the trainees were relocated to the new facility at Mare Island, named Naval Inshore Operations Training Center. In the 11-week River Assault Craft Training Program, Sailors were exposed to the special features of joint operations, counterinsurgency, SEER, short for survival, evasion, resistance, and escape, and all aspects of riverine warfare. This facility provided the manpower for Task Force 115, 116, and 117, which were specialized coastal surveillance, river patrol, and river assault task groups. In 1965, a river patrol force was established, designated Task Force 116. Task Force 116 operated in two broad areas, the Mekong Delta and the Rungsat Special Zone. So why was Rungsat designated a special zone? Simply put, it was one of the most dangerous areas of the country. Here's Rick Woolard, 
Navy SEAL, recalling the geography in the area of the Rungsat, known as T-10. A very um, dangerous for us area of the Rungsat, and uh, it was to the north, northeast part of the Rungsat, and uh, the, the, the river and the, the river there was, uh, had many small tributaries and was pretty much impenetrable in, in, to the river patrol boats. They couldn't get uh, deep up into it because they cut the, uh, the channels were so narrow and the, uh, the river was just uh, unpredictable. It was, there's so many small branches, it was very easy to get lost and hard to turn around. Or It was a, it was a place made to a- ambush us. Uh, and for that reason, it was a uh, very strongly held and defended enemy, enemy area. Suffice to say that the rung sought was hell. It was through these remote, inaccessible areas that the Viet Cong had been transporting troops and supplies in and out of the country. Plan that Task Force 116 set in motion in 1965 was for groups of 10 river patrol boats to operate from bases around the Delta and the Rungsat. In addition to the light nasty class vessels, four old LSTs, landing ship, tank, were ordered to the area and fitted out as mobile, floating bases that could anchor near the river mouths. 80 PBRs patrolled the heart of the Mekong Delta, while 40 more guarded the Rungsat Special Zone. The daily duty of these small craft consisted of searching Vietnamese sampans and junks on the river. A series of strict rules of engagement for sailors on the PBRs were enforced, allowing them to use deadly force only when fired on by the enemy. In practice, this seldom happened, and the more frequent outcome of boarding a suspicious sampan was that the occupants continued on their voyage with a bar of candy and packet of cigarettes gifted by the crew in a goodwill gesture for the inconvenience. Presence of U.S. Navy boats and men on the Delta and in the Rungsat forced the Viet Cong to change tactics. They started conducting more operations at night under the cover of dark, despite the curfew, and attempted to sneak past patrols during peak river traffic hours disguised as fishing boats, knowing that the sailors could not search every single vessel without causing a massive river traffic jam. The heavy traffic in these areas not only allowed the Viet Cong to run guns and explosives, but also to slip offshore and plant mines. With the increase of U.S. and Vietnamese Navy ships and boats in the rivers and in the coastal waters, the Viet Cong engaged in a mining operation that managed to do a great deal of damage not only to Allied ships, but to neutral craft as well. Securing the commercial and military ports had been a high priority for the U.S. Army since assuming an active role in the war, especially in the most important seaports of Saigon and Na Bay. As Ralph Christopher and Chief Jim Davy put it in their book Iron Butterfly, all went well until 0130 hours, May 26th, 1966, Black Thursday, when a mine blasted a 20 feet by 10 feet hole in the starboard quarter of SS Eastern Mariner at anchor in Bay. The Panamanian registered ship carried 4,000 tons of cement. U.S. Navy SEALs conducted checks on all of the ships in the anchorage, and at 1,000 hours, a mine was found attached to the hull of the French-registered SS Milo Del Mar. At 12.30 hours, the sinking Eastern Mariner was beached on the eastern bank of the Bay River. A little over an hour later, a mine was discovered on the anchor chain of the SS Our Lady of Peace, which was carrying 500-pound bombs. On that fateful day, the U.S. Navy learned that we needed to seriously strengthen our security and control over the rivers and port areas. The event merely underlined the substandard security in the area during these early operations of Game Warden. While Game Warden did make things more difficult for the Viet Cong, it did not deter them from operating in the area. They just changed tactics. And as was made clear during that Black Thursday, the Viet Cong focused more effort on attacking civilian vessels. Later that year, the Viet Cong mined the military sea transport service ship Baton Rouge Victory, blowing a 16 by 45 foot hole in the port side of the vessel, which killed seven crew members. Baton Rouge Victory mining resulted in the single largest loss of life suffered by the American merchant mariners from enemy action during the war. Minesweepers were deployed, but soon enough, the enemy expanded its attacks to target the minesweepers too. Since June 1966, Mine Squadron 11, Detachment Alpha, had been keeping the major shipping channels in the Rungsat area clear of mines using minesweeping boats, or MSBs. The MSBs were 57 feet long, wooden-hulled boats 
lightly armed with 150 caliber machine gun, 430 caliber machine guns, and a Honeywell 40 millimeter grenade launcher, surface radars, and minesweeping gear for clearing explosives from the waterways. MSBs generally carried a crew of six and had a maximum speed of 11 knots. It would make several daily sweeps in the Long Tau shipping channel, slowly moving at a speed between five and seven knots. But it was precisely their slow speed and light loadout and lack of armor which made them particularly vulnerable to ambushes. Historian John Darrell Sherwood again shares his opinion of this type of craft. Quote, the boat was not designed to operate in the high threat environment of the Delta, but the men of Mine Squadron 11 persevered nonetheless, living up to the Navy minesweeping community's motto of wooden ships and iron men, and earning the Navy's first presidential unit citation of the war. End quote. In just one day in February of 1967, five MSBs were attacked by the Viet Cong forces in the busy Long Tau shipping channel. But in late 1967 and 68, they started to turn the tide. Later in the war, finally, remotely controlled mine sweeping vessels entered service, significantly reducing the risk to U.S. personnel. The minesweeping experience in Vietnam provided a laboratory for minesweeping technology and strategy and resulted in a revolution in how the Navy thought, and still thinks today, about riverine minesweeping. In 1967, the Mobile Riverine Force, or MRF, of 184 U.S. and Vietnamese riverine craft was created and designated Task Force 117. Its purpose was to incorporate ground and air forces into the riverine patrols and allow the tentative river control we had established to push inland, securing the riverbanks and villages harboring the Viet Cong, another recommendation made in the Buckley Report. Ground support was provided by the Vietnamese Army and Marine Corps, U.S. Navy UDT, and SEAL units participating in Task Force 117 operations. These units, along with U.S. Navy attack planes and Army helicopters, worked closely together to conduct search and destroy operations in the Game Warden area of operations, including the Rung Sat Zone. Operations in the Rung Sat Zone involved clearing the riverbanks of enemy positions to keep the Long Tau shipping lane, which as we have seen was the main supply route that connected the South Vietnamese capital Saigon to the South China Sea clear. If Task Force 116's operations involved routine inspections and patrols up and downstream, Task Force 117's duties were more unpredictable and adventurous. This task force planned and took part in river assault actions targeting Viet Cong outposts and caravans. This meant that firefights were also much more common. On July 11, 1967, deep in Viet Cong controlled territory, an operation was unfolding. A river fleet, including Monitor 112-TAC-1, a 55-foot-long landing craft converted into a floating tank, complete with heavy armor and multiple cannons and machine guns, eight armored troop carriers, known as ATCs, two minesweepers, a command and control boat, and a second monitor, powered through the river current. Each of the troop carriers carried 40 Army infantrymen. That day, the ATCs were tasked with landing troops at different positions along the river, and then to take station to block possible enemy escape routes. During one such landing, the enemy detonated a Claymore mine just when the ATC was dropping the ramp. Seven sailors and four soldiers were wounded in the initial attack. Immediately, a group of Viet Cong emerged from the hole in the ground and started firing. More rounds were shot from the jungle, but no Viet Cong soldiers were visible from the boats. Bosun's mate second class, David K. Butler, was the coxswain on the first monitor boat. When he started receiving enemy fire, he fired back, alternating between the 81mm mortar and the 50 caliber machine gun that was mounted on the boat. He could hardly see where the bullets were coming from. He recalls the attack with these words. I put many rounds into the jungle. I did it because I was scared and I wanted to kill them before they killed us. If you weren't scared, you weren't there. End quote. Reportedly, they couldn't see the enemy and the soldiers and sailors that were ambushed that day responded with all of their firepower against the jungle. Air support was called, and a pair of Navy A-4 Skyhawks responded, dropping bombs and napalm over the suspected enemy positions. The airstrikes gave the men a brief moment of relief. The enemy had sustained casualties, but they were not defeated. One rocket launcher was destroyed before it could fire. A second Viet Cong fighter with an anti-tank rocket launcher managed to fire a round that hit the monitor's conning station, killing the captain and wounding six more sailors with shrapnel. More men came out of holes than the sailors and the soldiers could count and charged against the flotilla, 
carrying only small arms and determination. Again, Butler recalls, quote, all hell broke loose. So I grabbed a 50 caliber machine gun and poured fire everywhere. All of a sudden, a second rocket round hit somewhere on the boat, and that one knocked the crap out of me, end quote. He fell to the deck and ended up with his head under the 40 millimeter gun mount. He continues with the narration, quote, a big 40 millimeter cannon was going boom, boom, boom. And these spent brass shell casings were coming down on me. Of course, my helmet had been blown off and I was trying to protect my head. My arms were burning from the casings. I was trying to move out from under the gun. And I remember moving my arm across the deck and sloshing through a pool of blood. I yelled at the guy in the gun mount. Hey, what's my leg look like? And he responded, what leg? End quote. Many veterans have chilling stories like this one, and this just goes to show how vicious and wild and sad the combat in the jungles and the marshes of Vietnam could get. By the end of 1967, a force of more than 6,000 Marines were stationed in the vicinity of Khe Sanh, a remote and isolated staging base for what General Westmoreland, who commanded U.S. forces in Vietnam, hoped would be imminent approval to invade eastern Laos and cut the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Quezon also served as a staging base for recon and search and destroy missions in the meantime. On January 21st, 1968, more than 20,000 North Vietnamese soldiers, not the Viet Cong guerrillas, laid siege to the isolated Marine base at Quezon in a move that seemed to explicitly mirror the North Vietnamese wipeout of the isolated French fortress at Dien Bien Phu, which then caused the French to withdraw from Vietnam in 1954. To counter this assault, Westmoreland moved more and more soldiers and Marines to Quezon, eager to fight the North Vietnamese in a set battle in a thinly populated area where the risk of civilian casualties was small. More than 50,000 soldiers and Marines defended the Quezon perimeter at the height of the battle, and the Navy and Air Force poured what has been called the most concentrated application of aerial firepower in the history of warfare, with more than 100,000 tons of bombs, more than was used in the entire Korean War dropped on the enemy positions during a just two-month-long siege as the North Vietnamese leadership also threw more resources into the fight. From the coast, two aircraft carriers launched bombers and reconnaissance aircraft, which dropped innovative seismic and acoustic intrusion detectors based on sonar buoy technology to detect and identify enemy troop vehicle movements on the ground, which the Marines defending the Quezon perimeter credited with providing them with up to 40% of the intelligence used for the air and artillery strikes during the siege. For two months, the Marines fought in hellish conditions. Quezon was isolated and bad weather made resupply from air difficult. Every can of food, every round of ammunition, and every wounded soldier evacuated had to be transported in or out by C-130 airdrop or helicopter under vicious fire. By March, the North Vietnamese realized that we were not the French and withdrew after sustaining more than 50% casualties. A few months later, so did the Marines, as Westmoreland realized he would never get the sign-off to invade Laos and cut the Ho Chi Minh Trail, that Quezon had served its secondary purpose of being a tempting enough target to draw the North Vietnamese army into an open battle where superior American firepower could rain down and destroy them. Just after the Quezon siege started, the war came to the cities of South Vietnam. On January 30th, 1968, the Viet Cong took advantage of the traditional Lunar New Year truce called Tet to launch an all-out assault against almost every city in the South. This was against the backdrop of open Johnson administration peace efforts and fear among the North Vietnamese leadership in Hanoi that the emerging Sino-Soviet split between the two great communist states of the Soviet Union and China would result in either the Chinese or the Soviets trying to outflank the other by reaching out to Washington with an offer of friendship and decreased support for North Vietnam. The Tet Offensive was envisioned as a war-ending blow, which would prompt a general uprising in the South and send the increasingly demoralized Americans packing. Huge quantities of weapons and ammunition were smuggled south via the Ho Chi Minh Trail and into the cities of South Vietnam. But as before, the Tet Offensive exposed the Viet Cong to a losing proposition of open combat against U.S. forces. More than 36,000 insurgents were killed, another 6,000 captured, against 1,000 U.S. soldiers, sailors, and airmen killed. The Viet Cong did achieve some limited success, particularly at Wei, where sailors, Marines, and South Vietnamese allies engaged in 26 days of brutal urban house-to-house -house warfare 
which essentially destroyed the entire city to root out insurgents. From the coast, the heaviest gunline action of the war poured fire into the Viet Cong positions with an average of 800 rounds a day landing in Way alone. The communist offensive was a military disaster and destroyed the Viet Cong as a fighting force. But it was a political victory. The American public demanded that the troops be brought home, and the Tet Offensive is now recognized as a turning point in the war, leading to the drawdown of American forces in Vietnam and our eventual total withdrawal. As you may remember me talking about in the last episode, one of the keys to success in the Vietnam War, like every single war since the beginning of time, is to ensure that your forces have an uninterrupted flow of supplies, and its flip side, to disrupt the enemy supply lines. In this case, the flow of supplies coming from North Vietnam, Viet Cong insurgents in the South. If you listened to the last episode of the podcast, and you should also go and subscribe so you don't miss future episodes, which get released on a very strict schedule called Whenever I Get Around to Releasing Them, Operation Market Time and Operation Sea Dragon did a fairly good job of stopping the North Vietnamese from smuggling weapons, men, and ammunition south by sea in the early years of the war, and forced the North Vietnamese to shift tactics and move more supplies by land the Ho Chi Minh Trail in Laos and Cambodia, parallel to the Vietnamese border from North Vietnam to South Vietnam. From the Cambodian border, the North Vietnamese began smuggling their war materials in via a maze of rivers and canals and lakes in the western Mekong Delta. And so, another iteration of the endless cat and mouse game we played with the Vietnamese throughout the war, Operation Sea Lords was devised. Sea Lords is an awkward acronym for Southeast Asia Lake ocean, river, and delta strategy devised by Admiral Zumwalt, who in September of 1968 was appointed commander of the U.S. Military Assistance Command, Vietnam, or MCAV. Among Zumwalt's swift boat commanders was his son, Elmo Zumwalt III, and the future senator, presidential nominee, and secretary of state, John Kerry. Zumwalt had a close relationship with General Abrams, who at the time had replaced General Westmoreland as chief of staff of the United States Army. He then made good use of this relationship when he pitched Abrams the idea for a new campaign, aimed at establishing an interdiction barrier with small units, harassing the enemy in order to make them come out and fight. Sea Lords was officially launched on November 5th, 1968, right after the Tet Offensive, which was carried out between January and September of that year. After the Tet Offensive revealed that the Vietnamese, despite all of our best efforts, had been able to build up massive stockpiles of weapons in South Vietnam, the Navy's strategic emphasis redoubled on intervention. In particular, Zumwalt wanted to stem the flow of enemy supplies along the Cambodian border. To achieve this, he established a string of small bases and patrol barriers along the waterways near the border to disrupt enemy resupply there. In October of 1968, the strength of the in-country Navy was at its peak. 144 ships had been deployed to the Coastal Surveillance Force, or Task Force 115, 258 in the River Patrol Force, Task Force 116, and 184 more with Task Force 117, the River Assault Force. To this, we can add 655 craft of various types that the Vietnamese Navy was operating. By spring 1969, these forces were seizing over 200 tons of supplies per month near the border, which sounds like a lot, but in military supply terms is less than a drop in the proverbial bucket. The counter-argument which MCAV Commander General Abrams made, was that Sea Lords greatly reduced the Viet Cong activity in the Delta through deterrence. Sea Lords had four main initial objectives, although they were expanded later. Each one of these barrier operations had a particular code name. Operation Search Turn involved the interdiction of Viet Cong infiltration routes from Cambodia, along the canals from the Basic to the Gulf of Thailand. Operation Foul Deck covered the pacification of the selected trans-Delta waterways, Operation Giant Slingshot called for pacification and clearance of the so-called Basic Islands. And last but not least, Operation Barrier Reef sought to harass the enemy in order to keep them off balance. Of the four, I'm only going to go into detail on Operation Barrier Reef, which started in January of 1969. This was the final link in the upper Mekong Delta barrier and was part of the aggressive stance Admiral Zumwalt had determined for Operation Sea Lords. The area of Operation Barrier Reef cut through the infamous Plain of Reeds and it connected two barriers in the west, named Foul Deck and Search Turn, with another one in the east, effectively completing a continuous waterway barrier that extended from Tay Ninh City, northwest of Saigon, 
to Ha Tien and Rachigia in the Gulf of Thailand. The enemy's reaction to the new operation was, as expected, intense. Four sailors were killed and 16 were wounded in the first few weeks of the operation. Ambushes and mining were frequent. The open terrain of the Plain of Reeds, as the area was known, made infiltration through the area risky for the enemy. Once detected, the Viet Cong had difficulty withdrawing from the area due to the same lack of cover. So after the first initial forays, the Viet Cong began to back off. They had no advantage in fighting against massively superior U.S. military firepower in what was effectively a shallow, flat swamp with only waist-high reeds for cover. Contact grew less frequent here than other barriers. However, despite the lighter activity, Barrier Reef had to be maintained to ensure the integrity of the entire barrier system. The operation continued into the summer of 1970 and then was gradually taken over by the Vietnamese Navy. Operation Barrier Reef was also successful in keeping the enemy off balance, one of the main objectives of Operation Sea Lords. This included penetrating deep into enemy-controlled areas. One cool example of this occurred in May of 1969. The Navy wanted to move PBRs into an area of the Saigon River, not previously included in the Navy's area of operations. Six Army Sikorsky CH-54 Sky Cranes were used to lift PBRs from River Division 574 out of the water, dangling them below the massive helicopters, and fly the craft and their crews to the upper Saigon River, a process that took only three hours, whereas by water it would have taken four days. The unexpected appearance of the PBRs caught the Viet Cong by surprise, as had been hoped, and a key staging base was destroyed. The Navy repeated the same tactic to move troops and equipment deep into enemy territory, effectively controlling important waterways as part of the barrier reef operation. Now I want to shift gears a bit and talk about the emergence of special operations in the Vietnam War. Vietnam was the proof that a new form of warfare that first emerged as ad hoc commando forces in World War II would be vital to the wars of the future. To expand on this concept, a new kind of warrior and a new kind of training would be needed. Not since the days of swords and shields would such a small group of elite soldiers be able to have such a big impact on the battlefield. President Kennedy issued an executive order directing each arm of the U.S. military to create a new counter-guerrilla force. The Army had the Green Berets. The Navy had already been training frogmen since World War II, and so when it came time to create a new unit, they adapted what had already existed. The best of their underwater demolition teams, or UDTs, would provide the manpower. The new Navy unit would have to be able to fight on land and sea, but also infiltrate by air if required. The SALs don't sound quite as intimidating as the SEALs, so the SE part from C was used to create the now famous, if somewhat clunky acronym for the new elite unit, the Navy SEALs. Only the best men were chosen from the UDTs on the east and west coasts to fill out the ranks of the new SEAL units. 50 men and 10 officers on each coast were chosen to make up the first new SEAL teams. On January 8, 1962, SEAL Team 1 was commissioned in Coronado, California, and SEAL Team 2 was commissioned at Little Creek, Virginia. The men who made up the teams were chosen for a variety of skills. All were UDT operators, qualified to work underwater with a variety of equipment, including open-circuit scuba, closed-circuit rebreather, and mixed-gas systems more experienced parachutists. A few select individuals trained in very specialized fields were added to the first SEAL units as plank owners to round out each team's skills. Almost immediately, two counterinsurgency SEAL teams are placed in Vietnam by President Kennedy to conduct clandestine recon and sabotage missions. The SEALs quickly gained a reputation for valor and stealth in Vietnam. A total of 48 SEALs would lose their lives in Vietnam of the 260 deployed there over the course of the war. One SEAL legend is Master Chief Bosun's mate, Rudy Bosage, who has the record of longest time in service of any man ever in naval special warfare. He joined a UDT team in 1950. By the time he got deployed to Vietnam, he was already a seasoned SEAL and wanted to see some action to validate the constant training and pentathlon competitions he did with other SEALs. He describes the first impressions of Vietnam like this, quote, There was an enthusiasm on the part of almost all the men at the idea of going to Vietnam. After all, is what we'd been training for. When things really got rolling, many of the men at the creek would check the message boards to see if there was any need for replacements in any of the deployed platoons. If somebody was wounded over in Nam, we'd send a replacement that day if at all possible. Some men just live for going to Vietnam. End quote. It's hardly surprising. 
These men were the most prepared tactical units in the Navy. And what good is all that training if you're not applying it in the field? The primary goal of the Navy SEALs during the early Vietnam years under the Kennedy administration was help develop South Vietnamese naval commandos. But under the Johnson administration, the Navy was given the green light to conduct more direct commando operations. Submarines purchased sea lion were specially modified for special operations missions. Detachable undersea vessels were prepared to land SEALs, Green Berets, and South Vietnamese naval commandos behind enemy lines, gather intelligence, and rescue aviators shot down over hostile territory. The Navy SEAL commandos not only used tactical intelligence with devastating effect on the enemy, but also gathered precious information. Whenever possible, SEALs avoided engaging in heavy combat with enemy troops. Even though it inevitably happened, and the SEALs almost always emerged from these firefights with overwhelming kill ratios. SEAL missions more often entailed collecting intel on locations, resources, movement, and the leadership of enemy forces. When a target was identified, they would capture or kill enemy leaders, retrieve battle plans or political documents, and gather whatever other intelligence could be scooped up before the enemy arrived in force. In one typical raid, a SEAL platoon was tasked with capturing Viet Cong leaders reported to be meeting near Pham Tiet, a seaside town east of Saigon. At night on July 4th, 1967, several SEALs swam ashore and once they determined that the beach was free of enemy lookouts, signaled for more SEALs embarked in a rubber boat to join them. The group advanced inland and successfully captured three Viet Cong leaders, killed another who attempted to escape, and gathered a trove of political and military papers within minutes before heading back to the beach. Protected by naval gunfire from destroyer Brush, the ship which had transported them to the location, the SEALs safely paddled out and embarked along with their haul of prisoners and documents. No U.S. casualties were reported that night. Although not every SEAL mission ended up this way, this is an example of what they were trained to do, to infiltrate enemy-controlled areas, gather intelligence, and successfully reach the extraction point efficiently and swiftly. The largest night carrier operation of the Vietnam War was launched late at night and continued into the early morning of November 20th and 21st, 1970, when the carriers Ranger and Ariskany launched more than 50 aircraft over North Vietnam and along the coast as a diversion while an attempt to rescue prisoners of war from the Sante POW camp was taking place. Sante was only 23 miles from the North Vietnamese capital of Hanoi, meaning that it was a risky mission into the heart of enemy territory. Due to restrictive rules of engagement at the time, almost all of the U.S. Navy aircraft were unarmed, dropping flares to simulate bomb strikes and chaff to simulate mine lane missions near Haiphong. Luckily, none of the 20 North Vietnamese surface-to-air missiles fired at Navy aircraft hit their target. The Navy diversion was a success, and the Air Force strike team of six helicopters, two large support aircraft, five small attack planes, flew in from airstrips in Thailand unnoticed, landing 56 specially selected and trained Army Special Forces soldiers just after 2 a.m. in the morning. After disgorging the Special Forces operators, a report of negative items was sent back to base, and these soldiers piled back into the helicopters, which took off again for the Thai border with no casualties. This carefully planned rescue operation was the equivalent of the Bin Laden raid, where the group trained for months on a full-size replica prison built in Florida. However, despite almost flawless execution of the dangerous mission, the North Vietnamese had moved all 65 POWs at Sante to a camp closer to Hanoi in July of 1970. Despite the failure, the news of the mission reached the POWs, resulting in a huge boost of morale as tangible proof that they were not forgotten and proved to the North Vietnamese that the American South Vietnamese could easily reach the best-guarded North Vietnamese strongholds. Finally, criticism of the intelligence failures led to a major reorganization of the United States intelligence community, which Nixon would order a year later. In 1971, the Nixon administration's policy of Vietnamization of the war was in full stride. The number of U.S. troops in the country and the number of casualties quickly decreased, and the South Vietnamese troops took on more combat roles. Despite this, opposition to the Vietnam War continued to intensify in the United States. A major test of the Vietnamization policy came in February of 1971, when a 20,000-strong South Vietnamese border force launched an offensive, codenamed Operation Lam Son 719, into Laos to cut the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Despite U.S. logistical support and air cover, the South Vietnamese force got chewed up by the North Vietnamese resistance and thrown back out of Laos with extremely heavy casualties. 107 supporting American helicopters 
and 250 American service members were lost. The Vietnamization of the naval war went somewhat better. By mid-1971, almost all riverine and coastal patrol missions and craft had been turned over to the South Vietnamese Navy. By this time, most operations consisted of air support for South Vietnamese land troops. Naval gunfire missions along the South Vietnamese coast continued to decrease, and the Navy SEALs were withdrawn from Vietnamese waters, although some remained on alert at Subic Bay, Philippines. There was a brief reemergence in the fighting during the Easter Offensive of 1971, but major brown water operations were over for American sailors. The South Vietnamese continued the operations put in place by the U.S. Navy as best they could, but there was no stopping the North Vietnamese without external support. In 1975, South Vietnam fell. Since, the Vietnamese have become remarkably close partners in Asia, as we, the United States, and Vietnam have worked together to mitigate the rise of our common threat, China. The Pew Research Center conducted a poll in 2017 when it surveyed people around the world on their perceptions of the United States. And I was pretty shocked at the time to hear that the Vietnamese came in second worldwide, with 84% of Vietnamese having a positive view of America, compared to the global median of 49%, behind only ourselves, where the survey found that 87% of Americans had a positive view of their own country. As we wind up the Cold War in the next few episodes, we're getting into some decidedly modern contexts where the politics of the past have a pretty direct impact on the politics and events of today. After the last Cold War episode, I'm planning on taking a little break to prepare some more content, and then do a few episodes on the current state of the Navy and the emerging geopolitical conflict with China. I really hope that history in 100 years looks back at this conflict with China as the second Cold War, one that we hopefully win, because I fear that the alternative is a hot war, possibly sparked by a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. And when and if this does come, it will result in either a cage match between the United States Navy and the People's Liberation Army Navy, which is the Chinese Navy, that will make the fight against Japan in World War II look like patty cake. Or our political leaders will just roll over and accept a conquered Taiwan, losing the confidence of our allies in Asia, a nuclear proliferation cycle by countries that can no longer trust the American military to uphold the rules-based international order, and a realigned global stage that I can guarantee you we will not like at all. But for now, we're still firmly rooted in the Cold War. And if you're still listening, give me five stars on whatever platform you use. Subscribe because my episodes are randomly dropped based on the amount of free time I have. And spread the word in any way you can, because this is a true labor of love. And the little dopamine rush I get when the download numbers go up is the only thing that keeps this podcast going. And as always, feel free to send me an email at usnavalhistorypodcast at gmail.com. I try to answer every email I get, and I'll see you guys soon. Thanks.